From the Weston Harbour Castle Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or our podcast, welcome to the meeting. Before our distinguished speakers are introduced um, as part of the formal program, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head, head table guests. I would ask each guest to rise for a brief moment and be seated as your name is called. And I'd ask the audience to refrain from applauding until all of the head table guests have been introduced. Like that's going to work. So um, from my far left, Georgina Blanis, the Executive Director, Private Capital Markets Association of Canada and a Director of the Empire Club of Canada. Tim Patrickin, Board of Directors, Treble Victor Group, Investment Advisor, RBC, Dominion Securities. Sanjay Tugnayat, Chief Executive Officer, uh, Capgemini, Canada, Chairman, Blockchain Research Institute Advisory Board. Paratosh Gambhir, Partner, Financial Services, KPMG Canada, and a Partner and Head, and head of Blockchain Canada. William White, Chairman, IBK Capital Corporation, and a Director of the Empire Club of Canada. Don, Don Tapscott, one of our presenters, Co-founder and Executive Chairman, Blockchain Research Institute, and co-author, Blockchain Revolution. Richard Carlton, Chief Executive Officer, Canadian Securities Exchange, Director, the Empire Club of Canada. And from my far right, Dr. Gordon McIver, Past President, the Empire Club of Canada. Kent Emerson, Associate Vice President, Municipal and Stakeholder Relations, Municipal Properties Assessment Corporation, and incoming president 2018-2019 of the Empire Club of Canada. Dr. Samuel Peralta, co-founder and director, Cobalt Blockchain Inc. Matthew Spoke, chief executive officer and founder, um, ION Foundation, did I get that right? Do Alex Tapscott, also co-founder, Blockchain Research Institute and co-author, Blockchain Revolution. Mike White, president and chief executive officer, IBK Capital Corporation. And my name is Barbara Jessen. I'm the president of Jessen & Company Communications and the president of the Empire Club of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. It's hard to believe, but almost five years ago, my agency signed a new client, Canada's first and largest full-scale Bitcoin exchange. It seems very difficult for me to believe now, but at the time, the whole concept of a digital, digital currency was quite new. I remember trying to wrap my head around it to assess if there was any there there. I don't make a habit of walking away from new business opportunities, but I do at least try to ensure the agency's integrity in helping to build awareness for any client. And I thought I got it. As a student of medieval history, I understood the widespread emergence of banknotes in 14th century Italy, but banknotes were backed by precious metals. And I confess, I really struggled to grasp this idea of mining for bitcoins. I don't think I really got it until last year when I had an aha moment. I was reading Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens. For the first time, I understood implicitly that anything, even shiny metals, only hold value because as a society, we've agreed that they do. Sometimes it takes me a little while to get things. And just when I thought I was coming to grips with it all, blockchain took over the headlines. I guess it was there running in the background as the whole cryptocurrency phenomena emerged. But for me at least, it had fallen below the radar until suddenly every news outlet was writing about it as the ultimate security answer. Digital innovations increasingly leave physical metaphors behind. There is no useful or accurate analog or simile for blockchain like there is for electronic mail. When people cannot readily understand, they often dismiss 
a phenomenon you can try it for yourself if you share today's discussion with your friends over dinner tonight. Despite the great democratization of knowledge brought about by the internet, we are once again at risk of further segregating those who understand and those who merely use. It seems to me that this trend will only further exasperate, exacerbate the polarization and declining social mobility plaguing our society today. And that's why I think our next guests today are so important in this dialogue. Don, Don Tapscott has demonstrated the rare ability to take complex ideas and make them accessible to the rest of us. He seems to grasp their significance long before the rest of us do and put them into a context that makes them comprehensible. Don Tapscott, the executive chairman of the Blockchain Research Institute, is one of the world's leading authorities on the impact of technology on business and society. He has authored 16 books, including Wikonomics, How Mass Collaboration Changes Everything, which has been translated into over 25 languages. In 2017, Don and his son Alex co-founded the Blockchain Research Institute to provide a def definitive investigation into blockchain strategy. Don is a member of the Order of Canada and is ranked the second most influential management thinker and the top digital thinker in the world by Thinkers50. It's hard to imagine anyone who has been more prolific and profound and influential in explaining today's technological revolutions and their impact on the world. Alex Tapscott is a startup CEO and Bitcoin governance expert. He is a globally recognized writer, speaker, investor, and advisor focused on the impact of emerging technologies such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies on business, society, and government. Alex currently sits on the advisory board to Elections Canada, the independent nonpartisan agency responsible for conducting federal elections and referendums. In November 2017, Alex and Don Tapscott were recognized with the Digital Thinking Award from Thinkers50 as part of their Distinguished Achievements Award. Together, Don and Alex have co-authored the very ambitious blockchain revolution, How the Technology Underlying Bitcoin is Changing Business, Money, and the World, published in May 2016. According to Harvard Business School's Clay Christensen, it is the book, literally, on how to survive and thrive in this next wave of technology-driven disruption. It is a clarion call to all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Alex Tapscott to our po podium, who will be followed by Don Tapscott. Well, thank you, Barbara, for that rousing introduction. And uh, thank you to the Empire Club of Canada for hosting this event. Now, this isn't actually an official book launch, though I am very pleased to say that the book did uh, ship last week. And so this is our uh, big event for Canada. And the Empire Club was so kind as to get every single one of you a copy of the book, which you should have received by now. And uh, they have the right idea, which is that the best way to buy this book is, of course, in massive volume. So when you leave here today, think about your employees, your friends, you know, beach reading is right around the corner. No. Um, so in the book, we said that blockchain represented the second era of the internet. And over the past two years, with the development of this industry, I think that prognostication has been proven largely correct. And what we said in the book, basically, is if you look at the internet today, the internet that we've known for the past 25 years. When you send and move and share information on this internet, you're not actually sending an original unique thing, you're sending a copy. 
and you're retaining an original. Now, for most kinds of information, that's okay. So if I send an email to one person, I can send it to someone else, or I can send it to many people. If I host a website, it's available for all to see. If I put an entry into Wikipedia, uh, the whole world can access it. So it's actually a very powerful tool, right? It's like we all have our own printing press for information. Except when it comes to things that have value, assets, like, say, money, being able to send a copy is actually a terrible idea. So if I owe you $20 for something, it's important that when I send it, that you're the only person who can receive that money. That I can't send a copy to someone else in the same way that I could send the same email. Because if I can copy money the way I can copy information, then that money becomes worthless. It also happens to be illegal. Um, so that's a secondary problem. So it's great to have a printing press for information. It's not so good to have a printing press for money. And this is a specific problem that computer scientists have been trying to figure out basically for 20 years. And as a result of this problem, even though the internet has created a lot of value and transformed many industries, we still rely largely on intermediaries, middlemen, who sit in the center and perform a bunch of important roles. They validate the identity of parties, they establish trust, and they perform business logic, clearing, settling, record keeping, contracting, that basically makes the economy work. Now, overall, these intermediaries, banks, brokers, governments, but increasingly big technology companies, social media firms like Facebook, they do a pretty good job. But they have some specific limitations. The first is that they're all centralized. And anything that is centralized is vulnerable to hacking or to attack or to failure. And we see this in every single industry, and we also see it in government. The second issue is that they add costs and they slow things down. So in the case of sending money overseas, it can take days to move value between two parties on opposite sides of a border, and it can cost upwards of 10%, which is an odd thing when you really think about it. You know, we talk about the market for cross-border payments, right? When was the last time anybody here sent a cross-border email? It doesn't really exist. One form of information flows instantly, whereas the other, when it comes to value, takes time and adds cost. The third big issue is that they exclude large parts of the population. So there are billions who don't have access to financial services and about the same number who can't prove who they are um, through identity systems. And the final issue is that they capture data. And this is the one that I think is most relevant today, which is that every time you interact on the internet, you are leaving behind a part of yourself. And that's problematic because it means you can't use that information to organize your life. It means you can't monetize it. It's worth something. Look at the market cap of Facebook and it could potentially be used to undermine your privacy. So, what if the internet were entering a second era? From an internet of information to an internet of value based on this new technology platform called a blockchain. Now, we're not gonna get too technical, but for those who don't know, a blockchain is basically a vast global distributed ledger database. Except instead of existing inside of one computer system, inside of a third party like a bank or a government or a large corporation, it's replicated across every single entity that is connected to that network. And no single entity can alter the truth without everybody reaching consensus. So it gives everyone basically a perfect record of the truth upon which they can do trusted transactions. So on this platform, you don't need a bank or a broker to transact and move value and create uh, businesses. You can do it all peer to peer, which is why we call blockchain the trust protocol. Now, not everyone's as bullish as we are. So, I didn't take math, but I'd really, in, in university, but I'd really like to know how you square rat poison. I don't know. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, we've seen this before, where leaders of old paradigms uh, react to the new with hostility and derision, anger, 
Um, and this has been true throughout history of every single major transformation. Uh, and this is certainly nothing new here. Now, this is not to say anything about Mr. Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett's a legendary investor, uh, and his track record speaks for itself. Uh, but he's also the first person to tell you that he missed the internet wave, um, and that, at least with this technology, he may come at it with a bit more hostility, but he also admits that, that he's lacking in some knowledge. Um, and that's okay, because this revolution is not going to be driven by the Warren Buffetts of the world. It's going to be driven by the Warren Buffetts of the future. So blockchain is a funny thing um, in that it's, hard, it's not hard to define, but everybody sees it slightly differently. Some people look at the cryptocurrencies and they say this is a new asset class. Others look at the underlying ledger and they say it's a system for record keeping. Um, others still look at it and say, well, we can use this technology for contracts and other, other uh, business processes. And it's a little bit like this old parable, the parable of the elephant, where you have five blind men who are standing around this elephant and everybody's touching a different part, right? So one person's touching the body of the elephant and they say, oh, it feels like the trunk of a tree. The other one's touching the ear and they say it's a palm frond. The other one touches the trunk and says it's a snake. And that's kind of the way it is with blockchain. So what we tried to do in the book and what we've done with the updated version is try and basically remove the blindfold, to try and demystify what this is and to explain in a very simple to understand fashion. And the one area that I'm going to speak to you about today is around this new emerging asset class called crypto assets. So blockchain to me represents a new technology infrastructure for the internet of value. And with it, we're seeing the emergence of an entirely new asset class. And this asset class is going to eventually become the largest in the world. And we are about to experience the biggest transfer of wealth from the analog to the digital world. Now, I think a lot of people who are close to this industry look at all these different cryptocurrencies and they ask quite rightly, what are all these things? What do they do? Why are there a thousand of them? Why do you need a thousand currencies? Surely one currency to rule them all would make a lot more sense. If we end up with thousands of currencies, won't it just end up the way it is today, where we have fiat currencies for different national governments and tons of friction? And it's a fair point. And if you look beyond this, you actually see that most of these things are not currencies in the traditional sense. They're not designed to be a medium of exchange and a store of value in a unit of account, which is what a currency is. They actually uh, make up this rich tapestry of new assets. And I'm going to walk through them all today. So number one, cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, the mother of them all, as a network, it stores almost $100 billion of value. It's used by tens of millions of people every day to move and store uh, money. And um, it is the cryptocurrency that launched the 1,000 ships. But it is the first one. And although it was the most important, it's increasingly becoming less so. It spawned a few other examples of cryptocurrencies like things like Monero and Zcash and these others. Won't get into too much detail, but to say that these are cryptocurrencies that try to do what Bitcoin does, but add different new features. Faster transaction times, more privacy, or it may be even full anonymity. And there are lots of important use cases for Bitcoin. I think it's very likely that you know, 10 years time we'll be looking back and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will rank in the top 10 mediums of exchange that we use globally. Um, and as a result, they're creating all sorts of problems for banks and other incumbents. So depending on who you are, you might view this as a risk or you might view it as an opportunity. So if you're JP Morgan or Bank of America, uh, they've put Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies into their 
uh, risk assessment for the first time ever this year. Though it also is worth pointing out that Bank of America currently has 15 patents outstanding in the blockchain space and that JP Morgan spends more money than any other company in the world on this technology. Goldman Sachs sees a whole new asset class, one with massive global liquidity and also tons of volatility, which anybody who works in capital markets knows creates opportunities to make money. And so they've obviously made a big investments into exchanges and other platforms that trade in these assets. The second category are platform technologies. So these are not currencies in the traditional sense. These are general purpose platforms that are designed to build and run different kinds of applications. And the biggest one, and the most well known, is a thing called Ethereum. So before I go on, who's heard of this thing, Ethereum? Just raise your hand. Good, the queen would be proud. Um, <laughs> Ethereum is a Canadian success story. It was started by a 19-year-old um, University of Waterloo dropout named Vitalik Buterin and his merry gang of friends. And uh, they wanted to create a platform that could allow you to do more than just currencies. And the analogy, a helpful analogy, is to think of it this way. Bitcoin is a single purpose device. It's like a pocket calculator. You pull it out, you press power, you can do calculations, and you can do it pretty well. Uh, Ethereum is like the first PC. It is a computer, an operating system that allows you to run many different kinds of applications. Now, Ethereum also has launched a whole group of other uh, platform technologies. Aeon and Cosmos also started by uh, Canadians, uh, Polkadot, Neo, Icon, and others. So the question now is, is Ethereum going to be the iPhone, or is it the BlackBerry? Is it the in-between stage before we get to perfecting these final blockchain technologies? Either way, the emergence of these new platforms has disrupted the whole asset class, and I think for the better. So when we wrote the book, in May of, when the book came out in May of 2016, uh, Bitcoin is 85% of the market. So most of this other stuff we were talking about was basically just a science experiment. And today, Bitcoin, depending on the day, is only about a third of the market, and these new protocols are emerging. One of the big reasons for that is that they've become the foundation for a completely new form of fundraising called the ICO, which stands for Initial Coin Offering. Now, in the first edition of Blockchain Revolution, we actually talked about this. We called it a global blockchain IPO, which I guess wasn't as snappy as ICO because it never caught on. Um, and we talked about a project called Augur, which had raised $4.5 million in one of these sales, which at the time was really impressive to us. Of course, fast forward to today, and uh, $4.5 million doesn't really get you in the door um, in the ICO space. Um, and in the past year, we've seen the value of money raised through these token issuances go from 165 million in 2016 to 6 billion in 2017 to somewhere between five and 10 through the first two quarters of this year. It's almost impossible to know. And the way it works is that in order to issue one of these tokens, a lot of times they are on top of platforms like Ethereum. So the more companies that get built on Ethereum, the more valuable Ethereum becomes. And the more transactions that are happening in the applications on Ethereum, the more valuable Ethereum becomes. And the same is true, by the way, of uh, any of these other protocols which are launching. Most of the companies that are issuing tokens on these networks are doing this thing called uh, a utility token. So a utility token is basically a native digital asset that allows you to access services or some kind of preferred um, access within an application. Uh, there's an interesting analogy. It's kind of like if a, if a roller coaster operator uh, created a brand new innovative roller coaster and pre-sold rides on that roller coaster and then used the funds to build the roller coaster and then anybody who participated in that pre-sale got to ride the roller coaster for free for the first few years. It's basically like you're 
your investors are also your users. And it's a kind of a different concept than what we're accustomed to in the traditional financial services world. So there have been lots of different kinds of projects that have emerged um, over the past little while. I won't get into too many of them, but if you look at this second one to the right, the G, Gollum. So this is a distributed cloud company, essentially. And their argument is that there's more computing power in all of our smartphones than there are in all the big server farms that actually make up the cloud, owned by Amazon and Google and others. So how do we connect all of these devices into a distributed cloud storage and computational system? Well, you would need an incentive. And the incentive is their token. So if you connect your device and somebody uses it to store fragments of their data, you would get paid. And if you connect your device and you use the system, then you would have to pay it. And so it creates an economy within the application. And it's uh, become basically the way in which projects have raised money over the past little while. And ICOs have become such a hot topic that they made it into a Dilbert cartoon, uh, which is how you know you've really made it in life. So there's one problem with all this, which is that most of the projects that did utility token offerings last year weren't actually selling utility tokens. They were selling, I think, something else. I think that they were raising money for their startups, and they were giving people economic rights. And those people were buying it because of the expectation that they'd make money on it, hopefully, which looks a lot more like a security than it does this new kind of uh, token framework. Um, and that actually is fine. And I think that we'll end up seeing a large portion of the token offerings that happen in the future uh, as security token offerings, where basically what you're doing is you're buying equity or you're buying um, some kind of economic value in a project. And security tokens can apply to any, most types of financial assets, but they work specifically for assets where there is no underlying physical delivery of a commodity, basically. So if you think about a stock, a stock is a fractional share of a common enterprise where, as the bearer, you're entitled to a set of cash flows if they pay dividends. And that's you know, what a share in a company is. There is no delivery of oil or gold or some other commodity. A stock is just a, a, a contract. It is a conceptual thing. So all of the business logic, all of the clearing, settling, the payment of dividends, proxies, et cetera, can be collapsed into a digital token, can be paid out as a smart contract. And that means that the 110 trillion global equity market is poised to be transformed by this technology. Um, the next kind of token are these natural asset tokens. And again, these are like security tokens, but where there's a physical asset that requires delivery on the back end. Now, for certain kinds of um, assets, this is a marginal improvement. It would reduce settlement times from days and weeks to seconds. Uh, but someone still needs to actually deploy and deliver that commodity you know, to someone. We can't actually put the delivery of pork bellies onto the blockchain, I don't think. Um, but what this really creates, to me, is opportunities to enter into new markets, to use tokenization to open up carbon markets or markets for water or air. Um, and these are important issues because they could help us solve global problems. The last, the second to last one is crypto collectibles. So this is going to be a very revealing question. Who here owns a crypto kitty? Andre? No? Oh. Smart money doesn't own one. Um, so a CryptoKitty is a, an application that was launched in December of last year where you can basically go out and purchase or breed or mate uh, a crypto collectible cat. And um, this became very, very popular on the Ethereum network. It became so popular that it actually shut the Ethereum network down for a period of time. 
And um, people were really into these things, like in an almost unhealthy way. And, <laughs> and uh, the proof of that is um, the price that someone paid recently for CryptoKitty. The most expensive CryptoKitty to date that has been sold, sold for 140,000 US dollars. <laughs> it was a, to be fair, it was a really nice crypto kitty. Um, so why would someone pay that much money for a, for a digital cat, other than an unhealthy love of cats and too much money to spend? Um, the reason, basically, is that you can prove with 100% accuracy, effectively, that when you own one of these things, that it's the only one of its kind, right? Whereas if you own this CryptoKitty, nobody else can own it. In the same way that if I send a Bitcoin to someone, I can't send the same one to someone else. So if you think about Bitcoin, it's going to be 21 million Bitcoin. If you think about you know, the capital, cap table of a company, there's going to be X number of shares, you know, however many millions of shares. With a crypto collectible, there's only one of a kind. And it turns out there are tons of asset classes that are one of a kind. Artwork, for example. Uh, In-game purchases. Uh, purchases of real estate in virtual worlds, which is going to become huge as virtual reality and augmented reality converge with blockchain. But also we can use this crypto collectible technology for assets in the real world. Real art, cars, sports mem memorabilia, all of these assets where there's only one of a kind. You know, there's only one crypto kitty, but there's also only one of a certain Van Gogh or Rothko or Matisse or what have you. So all of a sudden we have a technology standard to help us uh, authenticate and prove unique assets, which I think is going to be massively disruptive. And then the final category are these things called crypto fiat currencies and stable coins. Now, a stable coin basically tries to maintain the same price uh, over time, benchmarked to some other thing like the dollar. So there's this thing, US dollar tether, which is supposed to always be worth $1. I'm very skeptical of stable coins because basically they changed the issuer question from the, federal, the central bank to some company who's now reissuing this token. Um, I'm much more interested in the crypto fiat, which are currencies issued by central, cryptocurrencies issued by central banks and governments. Now, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, and all these you know, fancy institutions have spilled a lot of ink talking about cryptocurrencies, um, but they weren't the first ones to do anything about it. The first ones to do anything about it were actually the Venezuelans, which, um, if anybody owns any Bolivars in their portfolio, I'm very sorry, um, are not really known to be paragons of fiscal responsibility. Um, but uh, they, they, they kind of went ahead and did this. So the Venezuelan government apparently issued this thing called the Petro in an ICO in this, uh, a few months ago, which uh, claims to be a effectively a coin that's backed by oil that's in the ground. It's decentralized. It's cryptocurrency. Um, there's no evidence really to support many of their claims, um, but it does demonstrate two things. Number one, a central bank can actually do this. Number two, um, if you look at the central banks and governments that are thinking about this seriously, Venezuela, Russia, Iran, these things have, you know, a few features in common. They have lots of oil. They are under economic sanction and they're not loved by the United States. So a lot of them are looking for a separate payment rail to enable transactions in the thing that they have the most of, which happens to be oil. And if they can do that, then they could potentially circumvent the US dollar system, which has been the dominant monetary system for 75 years, which is sort of an interesting concept, which means that the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve and others need to get serious. Okay. So this is seven crypto asset types, which is one of six new features, which is part of the new edition of Blockchain Revolution. We're looking back at everything that was in the first edition, everything holds up great. So I hope that you're all able to enjoy this uh, new edition of the book. I want to end on one thing, which is the question of regulation. So 
Blockchain attacks or affects uh, value industries. The internet attacked or affected information industries. So information industries like media, publishing, communications, et cetera. They're regulated industries, but they're more lightly regulated than value industries, like financial services, supply chains, you know, government services, et cetera, which means that regulators are going to play a much more active role. And uh, they're going to be an important stakeholder in helping to shape how this moves forward. The SEC, just a few days ago, um, made an important announcement where they basically said that Bitcoin and Ether are not securities because they're decentralized, but that a lot of these other tokens uh, could be. And that's going to be the sort of central challenge here, and it's going to help to shake out what this industry looks like. So I don't pretend to know where, where this regulatory landscape is going. Um, I look at the work that's happening in Canada and the U.S., and I'm actually pretty optimistic uh, that the people who are making decisions are really working hard to figure out all the facts. But there's one warning, which is that you want to be careful not to create rules that have unintended consequences. So during Victorian England, uh, with the introduction of the automobile, the city of London created these laws called the red flag laws. And the red flag laws said that you needed to have three people to operate a, a motor vehicle, what they called a horseless carriage at the time. You needed a driver, you needed a navigator, and you needed a red flag man. And the purpose of the red flag man was to walk in front of the car waving a red flag, which if you think about the car, kind of defeats the purpose of it. Uh, you're supposed to be able to go fast and go anywhere. It's hard to do it if there's a chubby, mustachioed man wa waving a red flag uh, in front of you. But why did they do that? Well, the thing that was occupying the roads at the time were horses, and they were concerned that the horses were going to be scared off by this you know, contraption, which at the time was actually burning coal as a steam engine, so it was really loud and obnoxious. So the regulations were being used to fit to the way the world used to work, not to the way that the world was going. And as a result, some economic historians say that uh, the UK lost leadership in the automobile industry to the United States because of the unintended consequences of these rules. So we need to think very carefully before we proceed. So I'm going to end on a brief note. This is a parable that was popularized by Ray Kurzweil, who's a very important um, uh, technologist and futurist. And uh, it's about the invention of chess. And it goes something like this. So the king of the land is so pleased with this invention that he offers the inventor anything he wants, whatever his heart desires, as a reward. And the inventor says, oh, you know, sire, I'm but a humble servant uh, and a humble man. All I need is some rice to feed my family. But I want you to give it to me in this way. One grain on the first piece of the chessboard, two grains on the second, four on the third, eight on the fourth, 16, and so on. And the king, who I gather is not like a math guy, um, <laughs> says, yeah, sure, whatever. How much rice could that be? You know, a barrel of rice, a bag, you know, your wish is granted. Of course, 16 becomes 32, becomes 64, becomes 128, so on, so on, so on. So by halfway through the chessboard, it's uh, more rice than the whole kingdom produces in a year. And by the end of the chessboard, it's enough rice to bury yourself in six feet of rice. Um, small side part of that story, the king was really irritated and chopped the guy's head off. Um, which doesn't fit my analogy so well. No. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, I think that, you know, the world's changed profoundly because of digital technology. We're at the sort of middle of the chessboard, but there's a lot more to go, and this is the period when exponential growth really starts to become difficult to control and becomes faster than we can anticipate. So uh, we're just very grateful for the opportunity to be here to speak to all of you, to the Empire Club for hosting us, 
and uh, for all of you for sharing an interest in blockchain technology. And with that, I'm going to end my remarks, which I know have gone over time. Um, one of the many lessons I've learned from my dad. <laughs> and, uh, and hand it over uh, to Don to do the second half. So thank you very much. Well, I'm <clears throat> delighted to be here, and I really mean that. One of the reasons is uh, that I get to uh, share a stage with Alex, and every time he speaks, this, this, this profound, witty stuff comes out of his uh, mouth, and it's a great accomplishment um, as a parent to, uh, to have a situation where your son is really a tough act to follow. Um, last time that happened to me, I think, was Bill Clinton. Um, <clears throat> and it, um, it has been a joyous uh, experience collaborating with Alex, I think in part because we share DNA, but we've also shared a pretty uh, common experience in our family together. We did a TV show when the uh, book first came out, and someone asked Alex, this is live on TV, how long have you cl been collaborating with your father? And he said, about 30 years. And uh, so... Um, we're very excited about the new edition of the book, and we hope that you enjoy it. Alex talked about the middleman, and these are central to establishing trust in our society, but increasingly they need help. I don't know if you can remember where you were on September 16, 2008, two days after Lehman Brothers fell, but I was on the stage doing the closing keynote for Cybos, the biggest congress of bankers in the world. 10,000 bankers, and uh, they were sort of like deer in the headlights, um, an analogy that works in Canada, and I've learned not elsewhere. But um, <laughs> although if you look carefully at this picture, you can see on the right a couple of thousand empty seats. These are all people who'd lost their jobs in the last three uh, days. But these intermediaries do need help. They're centralized. It means that they can be hacked. They exclude a couple of billion people from the global economy. They slow things down. You know, it shouldn't take seven days for money uh, from a Filipino housekeeper in Toronto to go to her mom in Manila, and she shouldn't be charged 20% for that. So overall, we need to rethink the banking system, but we re need to rethink everything. And Alex has referred to this as the second era of the internet. And I think that's an analogy that we used which is quite helpful. For decades, we've had an internet of information, and now we have an internet of value, where anything of value, from money to stocks to music to intellectual property, votes, things of value that belong to somebody, can be managed or transacted in a secure and a private way, and where trust is not achieved by a middleman, but by cryptography and collaboration and some clever code which is why we call it the trust protocol. Trust is native to the medium. Now, one of the benefits for traditional institutions, and banks are not going to go away. They're embracing this technology to reinvent themselves. Um, but one of the benefits is that this is a much more secure computing environment. And I came up with this great analogy to describe why it's really almost impossible to hack a blockchain. If you tried to hack Bitcoin, you'd have to hack that 10-minute block, 
plus the previous block, because they're connected with the digital wax seal, not just on one computer using the highest level of cryptography, but across millions and millions of computers all around the world simultaneously, while the most powerful computing resource in the world is watching you to make sure that you don't mess around. I won't say it's unhackable, but it's infinitely more secure than the computer systems running in the big banks in Bay Street, for example. So I had this great analogy, and then John Oliver on Late Night TV did a whole half-hour show on blockchain. And, well, you'll see what happened. That chicken is going to be fucked up. <laughs> He's going to spend the rest of his life suffering from PTSD and writing haunting poetry about the experience. The things I saw, buck, buck, buckor. My body is whole, but what of my soul? My body is whole, but what of my soul? Anyway, I still think it's a good analogy. So um, l l l let me just talk about four of the, uh, the new things that you're going to read in the new edition uh, of the book. First of all, <clears throat> as Alex has pointed out, this is not fundamental, fundamentally about currencies. It's about a new operating system for our economy that will profoundly change every institution uh, in the economy, including the enterprise. So in the book, we hypothesized, could you have a highly complex organization like a company um, that was highly automated, that had no CEO, no management, no people? It would essentially be a number of smart contracts, as Alex uh, explained, and, and autonomous agents. This is what's going to happen to AI. AI is not going to run on some supercomputer. It's going to be a whole bunch of little software agents that move around and learn, and learn how to do things that they weren't programmed to do. So you have these all running on a blockchain. Could you have the upper right quadrant there? We called it a de decentralized autonomous enterprise. We almost didn't publish it because we thought this is just too futuristic. You know, it's a fine line between vision and hallucination that over the years I've tried to manage, not always effectively. But um, we went ahead and we published it. A week after the book came out, an entity was launched called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It was a venture capital company with no CEO, no management, and no people. It was a bunch of smart contracts and autonomous agents on the Ethereum blockchain. Its first job was to go and raise some money. And in three weeks, this thing with no people raised 164 million US dollars and set about its work. Now, those of you who know the story, it's not a happy ending because there was a coding error in one of the smart contract facilities and the 
investor, or, or sorry, the creators of this thing decided to give the money back to the investors. But just the fact that this could exist. You know, Bob Dylan, there's something going on here and you don't know what it is. We're in the early days of some profound changes to the deep structure and architecture of the corporation. Companies are gonna look more like networks. It doesn't mean they'll be smaller, they could be big, but this is a change in how we orchestrate capability in society to innovate, to create goods and services, to engage with the rest of the world. So we have these new blockchains that if Bitcoin was like email for the internet of information, uh, for the internet of value, these new platforms, as Alex described, that look more like the web or that could look like a smartphone. So Hyperledger, brought to you by the Linux Foundation, led by IBM. Ethereum's gone enterprise now, creating an alliance of big companies that are adopting Ethereum. We have our three, 180 banks, that got together to try and create a new transactional platform for the banking system. And a killer app is turning out to be the $50 trillion supply chain industry in the world, the business of moving things around. Imagine, you know, you've got a whole bunch of suppliers and all these things kind of come together. I remember the CEO of Boeing saying a 787 Dreamliner is sort of a whole bunch of parts flying together in close formation. Um, well, you want to get that right. You want to know the provenance of all of the parts. And right now, things move through faxes and trains and boats and planes and trucks and emails and, and little bits of paper inside railway cars. Imagine if you could have what we call a shared network state, a global ledger where everyone sees real time what's happening, reducing errors, reducing friction, speeding up the metabolism of supply chains, fewer lawyers, sorry about that, lawyers. Uh, my sister I see her is in the audience, a fine lawyer. Um, <clears throat> and overall, revolutionizing a $50 trillion industry of how things come together in the world. And this is not a theory. This is a picture from three weeks ago at a conference called Consensus, 8,000 people in New York. I gave the opening talk and then I interviewed Fred Smith, the legendary CEO of FedEx, and Rob Carter, the legendary CIO. And they got the audience to applaud during the interview three times as people were just staggered by what, what a profound view the leadership of FedEx has about how blockchain can move their chain of custody, which they were famous for, knowing where a parcel is, to a whole next new level. Then we have these extraordinary new companies like Sweetbridge wanting to transform the supply chain industry. Here's one. Sweetbridge enables you to issue a currency uh, backed by your own supply chain, and that currency is pegged to a fiat currency like the US dollar, Canadian dollar, the pound, whatever. And then because you have this currency, you can borrow money from yourself to fund the advancement of your supply chain. If that doesn't hurt your head, um, <clears throat> then your head is different than mine. And that's one of a dozen things that this company uh, is doing. One Belt, One Road is linking Hong Kong and Rotterdam. The new Silk Road, a trillion dollar project led by China. There are 22 countries involved, hundreds of companies. All of the trade finance 
You know, you have a buyer and a seller, and in the middle are all these various players and agents and tax authorities and so on, all passing things along. Now they can see a common single version of the truth. So that's a big one. So this is not about cryptocurrencies only. It's about a change to the way business operates. Probably the biggest one, well, certainly in my lifetime and maybe ever. Number two, there's a big issue here that has to do with identity. And um, this is not just about identification. It's about something much, much bigger. And here's the way it works. <clears throat> I'm looking over here at my uh, niece, Emma. Um, Emma has a virtual Emma. And the virtual Emma knows a lot more about Emma than she does in all kinds of areas. Because the virtual Emma doesn't know what she bought a year ago or said a year ago or her exact location a year ago or what, what medication she had or what diagnosis she had or what she got on that test or what her heart rate was. All of this data is collected into the virtual Emma that constitutes her identity. This is the new asset class of the digital age. It's the new oil. Emma creates it, but she doesn't get to keep it. She can't use it to plan her life. She can't monetize it, and other companies are getting wealthy because of this. And her privacy is undermined. And people who say to me, well, Don, privacy's dead, get over it. I think that's a dumb point of view. Privacy is the foundation of freedom. And we need to get our identities back so that we can manage them responsibly. So, thank you. So in the first edition of Blockchain Revolution, we moved this topic right up into chapter one. And in the new edition, we've written about it a lot more because it's going to a next level. It's, uh, you know about the genome. Well, there's this thing we call the menome, that your identity includes all this DNA evidence now, and this deep, deep uh, real-time medical evidence as well. This is a really big problem, and it's a really big opportunity because it means that you can have your own identity that you control in a black box. And it's on a blockchain, and this thing will sweep up all this transactional information in a way that you can use it. You can decide to anonymize it and sell it if you want, and you can protect uh, your privacy. This is, I can't think of a more important issue in this digital age as we go forward in terms of getting our identities back. And this technology provides an ability to do that. And we're working very hard in a number of projects in the Blockchain Research Institute to ensure that this occurs. Now, this is an existential issue for Facebook, for sure, because you know what? They're the old feudal model. You know, that we all work the land, we get to keep some cabbages. Well, that's the model of a long, uh, remember feudalism, right? The system prior to capitalism. The landlord kept everything that you made. Well, Emma wants more than a few cabbages. She wants to have all of those vegetables. <laughs> this analogy is going nowhere. <laughs> Emma, eat more vegetables. <laughs> so, What's going to happen is that there'll be a new generation of data brokers that will negotiate with her. And she's probably going to say, if I'm found unconscious in an accident, my entire medical record can be released to any certified medical person. And, but she also may say, you know, I'm going to anonymize my uh, certain parts of my medical record and use it for, let people use it for research, or maybe I'm going to sell it to certain people or whatever.
Now, I, I speak passionately about this because not every book I've written has been a bestseller. I've had a few studies in bad timing. Uh, this was a 1995 book that I wrote with Ann Kabukian. Back then, everybody said, privacy? Huh? I don't get it, Don. And uh, so my mother, thankfully, came through with a big volume purchase on this book. Um, but uh, nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come again. And at the Blockchain Research Institute, we're spending a lot of time. Uh, thanks to Gowling and some of our other partners, KPMG is here, we held uh, a big round table where we brought, uh, a couple of months ago, brought many of the world's leading thinkers together. Okay, gotta get through this. Number three, if this is the second era of the internet, where's Silicon Valley going to be? Well, that's kind of a pertinent question. Because look at Silicon Valley, what an economic engine that is. Makes people there make more money in the whole Bay Area than anywhere else in the world, practically. Um, maybe New York is higher, because they have the banking industry. But um, there are jobs, there's wealth, there's lots of money for government and infrastructure and all the rest. Well, what are the criteria? It turns out that Canada's pretty good. We got some good government support. In our Blockchain Research Institute, we have the Bank of Canada, the federal government, the Ontario government, the city of Toronto. And you talk to John Tory and he'll tell you about blockchain, as will our prime minister. Um, we got a pretty good market here in Canada. It's not the same as, say, Shanghai. Um, the regulators in Canada are pretty good. They certainly aren't doing really dumb things like are being done in some other places in the world. There's a great ecosystem. I remember Alex was asked to speak at this meetup, and uh, the first one had like 100 people showed up, and the second one had 300, and the, the next one had 600, and he shows up, there's 1,100 people, and 400 are trying to get in the door and seeing it in all kinds of other um, um, off-campus uh, 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 TVs and so on. We have five big banks, not 100. And they can actually get together and rebuild the whole banking system if they willed it. We have thought leadership now. The Global Center for Thought Leadership is Toronto through the, uh, our institute. Funding for investment was never really great in Canada. Lousy angel, not so good venture capital. And the real problem was you get to be a $30 million company, you want to do a Series A or Series B round, and uh, Sequoia would say, well, you got to move to Silicon Valley. So we not only had a brain drain, we had a company drain. Now, thanks to Donald Trump, the brain drain is being reversed, but also the company drain is being reversed too because of ICOs, that you don't need to go to Sequoia now to get funding. And... Um, we got a great labor force, lots of young people, great universities, great computer science. And big companies are starting to pay attention to this. So um, where's Luke? Today or tomorrow? <laughs> tomorrow. We are announcing, you get to see it here first, a big um, analysis that we're doing. And it's going to be real time, and it's going to be on the internet of the top 15, uh, the Internet of Information, that is, the top 15 uh, centers in the world, according to our weighted analysis. And we're going to hold a World Cup of blockchain where those top 16 will be in four quadrants. And we're going to go on to Twitter and let the world decide 
who wins the first round and who wins the second round, and ultimately, who will win the World Cup. So do come to blockchainresearchinstitute.org. Is that where it's going to be? Yeah, blockchainresearchinstitute.org, and vote for your favorite. But it's amazing that Canada is even on that list. Uh, 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 Canadian Centre is even on that list. Finally, I wanted to just close by saying thanks for your support. And um, we're doing a lot of great stuff at the BRO. We have actually 80 projects underway right now. They're funded by many of the world's largest uh, companies and a growing group of governments. And we're looking at the strategic implications of all this technology. So I'd like to just pause for 15 minutes while you read through this. And then we'll have a question period. Under Breakthrough Ideas number eight is particularly fascinating. No, these are the projects uh, that we're doing. And each of the projects, after it's been available to our members for six months, we're going to open um, under a Creative Commons and uh, the world will be able to see it. So that's going to be really exciting. Alex mentioned regulation, so I just pulled off a few of the reports that we're doing on that topic. We have the world's leading scholars on regulation, the world's leading policy thinkers, and we had a regulation roundtable where we brought many of these regulators uh, together. And it's a tough time to be a regulator because you have the irresistible force of this new technology meeting up with the immovable object of the need to protect consumers and, and uh, investors. And we think tinkering is not really going to work. We're going to need some, some important new thinking on this topic. So these are four of the new topics. I hope that this is a pitch on why you ought to read uh, the new material in the book. And we hope that you'll find it helpful. This is a time of big change. It, it is a new paradigm. And new paradigms are often received with coolness, or worse, mockery, hostility vested interests fight against change. Leaders of old paradigms often have great difficulty embracing the new. How will your company find leadership? How will Canada find leadership? And can we do this? Well, our view is that the future is not something to be predicted. The future is something to be achieved. You all self-selected to come to this event. Thank you very much for that. That means that you collectively are part of the nascent leadership that perhaps can uh, build an innovation economy in this country and contribute to solving some of the most intractable problems uh, in the world. Now, technology doesn't solve these problems. People do. But, you know, the first era of the Internet resulted in some things that are not so great, undermining our privacy. We have a bifurcation of wealth. We have a fragmentation of social discourse where anyone can end up in their own little self-reinforcing echo chamber and believe whatever they want. There are many, many problems. And blockchain's not going to solve them. But, you know, once again, this technology genie has escaped from the bottle. It was summoned by this anonymous person or persons at this uh, uncertain time in human history. But it's giving us another kick at the can, another uh, opportunity to rewrite the economic power grid, the old order of things, and maybe build a world that's, that's uh, more just, more open, more fair, and more sustainable. But only if we will it. So thank you very much.
you, Don. Uh, Richard Carlton, the CEO of the Canadian National Stock Exchange, is going to thank Don and Alex. Thank you very much, uh, Barbara. Everybody, on behalf of the Empire Club of Canada, it's my privilege and honor to thank Alex and uh, Don for their remarks this afternoon. Um, congratulate Don for perhaps dropping the first F-bomb in the history of the Empire Club of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that coming, I gotta tell you. <laughs> and to report from the front lines that in fact uh, Canadian business is going to take a leadership role in the adoption of blockchain technologies. We are going to provide a safe, well-regulated home for these new digital securities that are being created. We're gonna provide investors with new kinds of investment products. We're gonna reduce costs for issuers and we're gonna dramatically lower costs for investment dealers participating in the marketplace. This really is going to be a revolution and it's going to change things in our small part of the world. And I think all of you here today are going to see the impact a lot sooner rather than later. Finally, I'd like to congratulate Barbara on a successful year as uh, president of the Empire Club of Canada. It's been a privilege and honor to work with you as well. Thank you very much, everybody. For over 100 years at the Empire Club, we've prided ourselves on bringing important topics to public discourse, but we couldn't do it without our sponsors, and so we're extremely grateful to the sponsors for today's event, IBK Capital, the Canadian Securities Exchange, and our book sponsor, Cobalt Blockchain Inc., and gold sponsor, KPMG LLP, for making this event possible. We're just extremely grateful that you've allowed us to bring this important discussion to our podium. I'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for webcasting today's event for thousands of viewers around the world, and also to the National Post, our print media sponsor. Although the club's been around for, uh, since 1903, we have moved into the 21st century. We're active on social media. You can follow us at empire underscore club and visit us online at www.empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on LinkedIn. This concludes our 2017-2018 season, but we're already hard at work on next season, and I'm pleased to let you know that our first event will be Victor Dodig, CEO of CIBC, on September the 11th. Thank you so much for your attendance today, Richard, and everyone, thank you for your support this past year. It's been a marvelous ride, and this meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>